Welcome to the Nature and Society podcast, where I discuss a variety of topics regarding the interactions and intersections of the natural world and human civilization. These topics range from climate change to environmental justice and more. Each episode will focus on a specific subject to go as in-depth as a non-expert on these subjects can go in less than an hour. In this episode, I will be talking about some of the ancient origin stories different human societies used to explain how the world around them came about. We will be looking into probably the most well-known origin story, the Judeo-Christian story of Genesis. We will also look into the Americas for a less-known creation story from the Hopi tribe of the southwestern United States. Lastly, we will take a look to the Far East with Buddhism. A brief overview of the story of Genesis would be that God, the ultimate creator, spent six days building the earth, specifically for man. God created a man, Adam, and a woman, Eve, from that man, and both were made in God's own image in the Garden of Eden. Eden was a paradise and made specifically for people. Man, and in the story it's first Eve, was corrupted by the devil, an evil being in the form of a serpent. Their corruption was from the pursuit of knowledge from the tree of knowledge. God cast out Adam and Eve into the harsh world. From this and from what they did, which was an affront to God, Adam was cursed with having to work to get what he needs. He'll always have to sweat to get his food or whatever supplies he or his family will need. And in paradise, he did not have to work. And Eve is cursed with the pain of childbirth, so... Supposedly, in Eden, neither of these people had to go through either of these troubles. It wasn't until they were cast out and punished that they were given both of these, they say, like, curses. To get a little bit of reference here, I have some direct quotes from the Bible. Keep in mind that for each of these creation stories, there's multiple iterations, including the one in the Bible. But here it says... Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So as you can hear from this, it gives man pretty much ultimate power over, an ultimate dominion over the world and everything in it. It goes on to say, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed, which is upon the face of all the earth and every tree with every seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the air and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And then even still, it goes on to say, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground, the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to the man to see what he would call them and whatever the man called every living creature that was its name so in the bible god gave man the right to name everything exactly how he saw fit now while actually that last quote was from another iteration of genesis it still shows how even in the different versions, there's a lot of common themes of man having complete dominion over the earth. So now dissecting and looking deeper into the story of Genesis and seeing what we can take away. um, The first thing is that earth is mentioned to be created specifically for humans and for man. 
and this creates an idea of ownership that people have regarding the environment, including all living things, plants and animals. It definitely would create a poor treatment for that society of the natural world around them because when you view all living things as something you own and something you can do with as you please because God put it there for you, then you're not going to treat it very kindly and very well. Also that the book says that man itself was created in God's image. So we are like the chosen living, breathing creatures. It also mentions that paradise is a garden. It's, you know, it's the garden of Eden, not the woods of Eden or forest of Eden. And a garden is just a, a human controlled type of environment. It's not a uh, wild or really synonymous with nature. It's more of like man-made or man-controlled. And that's, where paradise was and the world was basically a punishment to be in and harsh and that's why they were cast out of the garden into the world so it shows what their opinions are and views of for a garden versus the actual natural world that they live in two other lesser related takeaways from the story is that the pursuit of knowledge and trying to gain more knowledge is a sin and can lead you to a dangerous path while having blind faith in what you're told is a safer bet and better to do and then also that in the story women were made for man and they're the ones who ultimately corrupted man which that paired with the fact that you know god's always referred to as a guy and priests can only be guys you can see how there's just a lot of very improper and controlling themes throughout the book and especially in this story alone. So you can see how it would shape and mold a society to hold those certain beliefs. And then once you take those beliefs and, you know, enforce them on the world around you, like nature and animals, it's just going to be a lot worse. Genesis also talks about how humans conquering and subjugating the world as they're supposed to because that's what the world was made for and it was made for them and the bible even mentions that only land that is improved upon which improved upon means uh subjugated in some way like you changed it to make a house or make a farm or a field or change it from its natural way that's the only way to say that the land is owned by you so to own land you have to change it and shape it and disrupt the natural order of things. I'll go into this more in another episode, but that argument of land improved is the only land owned is actually a, one of the ways that early colonists under England were able to take land from Native Americans because they used the land, but they didn't try to subjugate it and own the land and change it as the Judeo-Christians did. And I'll get a little bit more into a Native American tribe later. This story of Genesis is one of the oldest creation stories that we know of, as it comes from the Hebrew tribe, which is one of the oldest societies that we know of today. And if you study world history, you see how much of an effect Christianity and even Judaism have had on the world and how much mostly Christianity has shaped the world today and dominated a lot of western cultures including modern day america and 
Christianity and Judaism being two of the largest belief systems in the world and having all that effect means the values and lessons in the story are very far-reaching and have, you know, a lot of people have internalized it or believed it and used it for good or for bad, but still believing in things like um, conquering and subjugating the wild is God's will is something that really hurts the natural world around us. And anytime you disrupt a natural system, there can always be negative consequences. But when one of the the basics to the largest religion in the world talks about that and even promotes it, then it's a serious cultural problem. Now, while you can look at a journal article like the one I have here, Christianity and the Environment in the American Public from the Journal for the Scientific Study of Religion, and see how they found no connections between belief in the Bible and poor treatment of the environment or poor outlooks. They actually found some people had better outlooks when they were connected to the Bible and believed in that, and they treated the environment with more respect. However, this is a more recent study from 1993 where, especially by this time, people are taking things in the Bible far less literally and not as much to heart as people might have thousands of years ago when it's hard to know how literal they took things or what they really believed when they read those stories or what they thought those stories were asking them or provoking them to do. And then when you bring up how it's not just individuals, it's all these collectives such as, as I mentioned before, the Native Americans land being stolen in early colonial New England by the colonists because they believed that they didn't own the land without some sort of subjugation, like making it a farm or adding fencing or something else. Now, when you have that, those big groups of people and cultures and even nations using something like this, that's always more damaging in the long run than just a few individuals believing it or taking it to heart. It's about these big collectives who are believing it and using it to advance themselves. While you can take that study to heart and believe that there is no correlation between religion and environmental outlook. There have been dozens of studies done on the subject, a lot of them done in different methods because it's a very difficult task to tackle. In the same journal as the first article, the Journal for Scientific Study of Religion, there's another article called Structuring the religion-environment connection, identifying religious influences on environmental concern and activism. And in that study, they say, quote, following Lynn, contention of a link between Judeo-Christian values and a desire for dominion over nature, religious beliefs and commitments have been singled out as having a potentially negative impact on environmental concern and activism and being incompatible with the new environmental paradigm Several researchers have found a significant negative relationship between diverse measures of conservative religiosity and various indicators of environmental concern. So they found the opposite of the first article to be true. And this one was, this article was 2007, while the other was 1993. 
the Hopi creation story is a little more intricate than Genesis. And it starts off with a what they call first world, which is a world inhabited just by underground bugs. Their ultimate god, Tawa, the sun god, sent a spirit called the spider grandmother to the bugs to lead them into the second world where all the bugs were transformed into wolves and bears. But in the second world, the creatures were still unhappy, so the spider grandmother led them again, this time into the third world, and this time they actually became people. And she taught them different skills that people need to know and that was important to the Hopi people, such as weaving, pottery, and she gifted them a fire drill, which is like, it's a primitive way to start a fire. It's like when you have a bow and arrow and you take a stick and you kind of curl it in the drawstring of the bow. So when you slide the bow up and down, it spins the stick, causes friction, and makes fire. It was really important to their civilization, so they had it included into the creation story. So in this third world, some of the people there were extremely wicked, so two stories ended up emerging from this. The first story is that the spider grandmother ripped open the earth at the Grand Canyon as the tribe wasn't far from there, so they knew of its existence. And she let the righteous people escape through a reed. They climbed out through the third world into the fourth world, which is where we are today. The second story is that Tawa, that ultimate sun god again, flooded the third world, but those who were righteous and who were not wicked were placed in reed boats by the spider grandmother and saved. In this version of the story, they even refer to the north as the back door that some people used, likely in reference to the land bridge that their ancestors actually came from, from uh, like where Siberia is now into modern day Alaska and then came south. And in this fourth world, the Hopi realized that there were different groups of people and tribes and societies, and they talk about how each group of people was to choose a ear of corn and the ear you chose will determine your destiny and what the Hopi people chose was the short blue corn which made they were destined to have harder lives than the other people but healthier and hardier and happier. I personally find it really interesting when you hear these creation stories and you hear them try to explain certain things they know of in their world, like you hear about how they said, some believe that the Grand Canyon was a tear in the earth to release the righteous people onto this world because it's, it's huge. They don't really have, they don't understand erosion or how else it could really be made at that time. They made the story other than some great being created it. And then they also talk about the back door, which was the land bridge from Asia, which people used to get over. They mention their reed boats, which is how they escaped the third world, which means it's possible some of them could have sailed over to the new world from where they were in Asia. And lastly, too, they bring corn up in their story at least a few times, including the blue corn that they chose, which determines their destiny. In American Indian Quarterly, there's an article called People of the Corn, Teachings in Hopi Traditional Agriculture, 
spirituality and sustainability. And in it, the authors say, for traditional Hopis, corn is the central bond. Its essence, physically, spiritually, and symbolically, pervades their existence. For the people of the mesas, corn is sustenance, ceremonial object, prayer offering, symbol, and sentient being unto itself. Corn is the mother in the truest sense that people take in the corn and the corn becomes their flesh, as mother milk becomes the flesh of the child. This makes it easy to see the kind of impact that their environment had on themselves and their culture and their creation story as corn was the staple food in the area and it to them represented so much more than just the sustenance that it was. What I believe to be by far the most important takeaway from this story is similar takeaway to a lot of other Native American stories in that they had what's called an emergence story. They weren't created by God. They weren't just placed here. They emerged from the earth and the world in some way. And they always compare this, especially in the wording of the stories of how they're birthed from the earth in the way a child is birthed from a womb, which makes their view of earth and nature as literal mother nature, that they were birthed from it, that they came up from it and they're a part of it and it is a part of them. And it sets the stage for a lot of their treatments of the earth. And while Genesis tells humans the earth was created for humans, the Hopi story tells humans that the earth just created them and they're just a part of it like all the other creatures that are there. It's worth noting too that even in this story, while the Judeo-Christian story has one all-powerful god, the Hopi story has multiple different gods with different tasks and assignments. Like there's the ultimate god, the sun god, Tawa, who's the most powerful. Then there's also the spider mother or spider grandmother spirit that is what helped humans to survive and get to the world that they're in today. Being a spider grandmother, it makes her female, which is interesting too because the Hopi people are a matriarchal society, while Judeo-Christians with God who's a he, they are patriarchal. It's kind of an easy even assumption to make that the Hopi tribe and culture has been far less devastating to the environment than those who share the Judeo-Christian culture. But that also would just have to do with the massive size variations between the two cultures and those who believe those two origin stories. Even still, we can look at their the two cultures' views on the natural world and the earth from their stories and how it differs because you have Genesis where being on this earth and on this planet and having to work is a curse and a form of punishment for past sins while the Hopis had to keep leaving you know, the first world, the second world, and then the third world because of wickedness and they kept messing it up and they were finally birthed into the fourth world and it wasn't a punishment to be here. The righteous were sent here. It was a gift. They were happy to be here. They were happy to be alive and they didn't look at having to work as something terrible. They looked at it as they will have a hard life but it will be hardier and more meaningful. 
now we can really see the differences and attitudes that these two cultures had and while we can't exactly see the results of it as like i said the discrepancy in size really has an effect we can still see how the hopis really did treat their environment with respect and they lived a life where they were moving around a lot and making a lot of homes but tried to have as little impact especially negative impact on the world around them while the judeo-christians went out of their way to this all brings us now to the story of new guinea and i want to take a step away a little bit from the actual cultures of these societies and look at how their environments and where they came about really shaped who they were and what they did in the you take a look at the christians and where they came from and you know a lot of people including myself wonder how did they become the dominant force were they the best did they have a, a idea that other people really could identify with and believe in why was this the culture and uh, religious belief system that became so dominant throughout the world to answer this we're going to look at new guinea and compare it to where christianity came new guinea is an island nation in the south pacific ocean and it was inhabited by indigenous people for thousands and thousands of years and they developed agricultural techniques as early as 7 to 10,000 BC, which is around the same time or just a little bit after it developed in other parts of the world, specifically the Middle East, where they had wheat as something they could grow. And wheat was packed full of protein and nutrients and was not too difficult to now in new guinea what they farmed traditionally was taro which is a starchy root grain that was much less nutritious and much harder to cultivate than wheat more difficult cultivation and less nutrition in what they were cultivating meant it cost them more energy and more work in general to get their food and get what they need to live while those who are growing wheat spent less time and less energy total to get even more energy back. So they had a lot more time to focus on other things and develop other parts of their society or their technology. New Guinea also lacks large animals that are found in where the Hebrews and Christians are from. Like over there, they have big animals like cows that they can use to work the fields transport things they can use that itself as a food source while in new guinea they only had boars which you can't really train you can eat them but there weren't a lot because an island they weren't nearly as nutritious and they weren't really practical or useful and on top of all of that new guinea lacked the natural metal resources that you find in the Middle East or Europe or even Asia. They didn't have the metal in New Guinea to make their tools better, to make farming easier. And that lack of metal, the lack of animals to help farm, the lack of time to develop better methods because of how much effort was put into them cultivating resulted in them being 
a very unadvanced group of people when the Western civilizations came and contacted them and colonized the area. And those civilizations were the Christian civilizations. And by the time they got there, they had ships with cannons while these people in Papua New Guinea had pretty much nothing compared to them. They were, I guess you could compare them to a Native American tribe, but even in some respects, they were a little less advanced despite developing a agricultural system and practice thousands and thousands of years before a lot of other societies did. So I'm bringing all of this up now just to point out how where a society is and where it came from can affect its cultural and its uh, creation stories, but it also can give them different advantages throughout history that will help them to advance further than other things because a lot of it boils down to energy in, energy out. It's just about energy. The more energy it takes somebody to do something, the less energy they have to develop other things. So in Papua New Guinea, they had to spend so much energy just working on their agriculture for not very great food, so they couldn't really develop other things while in just west of them, you had the Middle Eastern and European areas where they had all of these advantages, including animals, the type of food there, and the ability to make tools to use less energy and work on other things. And a lot of times those other things make their practices like farming even more efficient. So it takes even less energy and they can get even more out of it. So they have more and more time to focus on things aside from just eating and drinking and having shelter. They had other focuses. So this now makes me wonder, at least, whether a lot of the destruction caused by Christian societies were actually from Genesis and the Bible and the teachings and the culture itself, or if it just comes from the fact they were able to advance so far that they could just keep going and using more and doing more and producing more and making more breakthroughs than anybody else anywhere else. It really begs the question if Native American tribes had the same supplies or knowledge, would they have become similar to them? Or is it because them, like the indigenous people of New Guinea and their lack of resources that they had to adapt to living the way they do and living a sustainable life without having much of an effect on the land. As I said before, studies on this are so difficult and I've looked up a lot and there's a lot of good ones out there that bring up a lot of interesting points, but so many of them have different methods and they use different groups and it's it's confusing and they have such conflicting outcomes constantly that using them can get very frustrating. I do think it's safe to assume that culture plays into people's attitudes on the world. Um, more so, you know, a hundred to a thousand years ago when they were regarded more highly than today. And I think it's safe to say that the locations that these tribes are from not only affect their advantage in the world with resources and supplies, but it also affects and molds their creation story as 
they're trying to explain the world around them. And the world around them will be different than the world around a tribe living 600 miles to the north or 2,000 miles west. Change the world to better suit them and their own purposes. Taking a step back and looking at all of them broadly, we can see massive differences between all of the cultures and societies. You have the Judeo Christian stories, which came from Israel and the Mediterranean and the cradle of civilization, the earliest place where human societies lived. And then going further back east, you have India with both Hinduism and Buddhism. And finally, going all the way west to the other side of the globe, you have the Hopis, who were a southwestern Native American tribe who inhabited what would now be Arizona near the Grand Canyon and the desert. Each of these respective religions and cultures were created independently of one another. And from these very differing places, you have creation stories that have very different themes and ideas prevalent within them. Like in Genesis, you have one all-powerful being, God, who is a man, and he created the humans in his own image and created the world specifically for them to subjugate and conquer, as it puts it. And for man, being on Earth is actually a punishment, and all of the work and pain and suffering that comes with it is a part of the punishment. Then the Hopis, while they do have uh, Tawa, the sun god, the god that actually helped them to get to Earth and where they are now, was a female god, and a god of a spider nonetheless, which most people associate with being dangerous or scary. It's one of those creepy crawlies, but to them, it was the god that helped set them on their way and gifted the earth to those who were righteous. So being on earth was a gift. It was something to be happy about. It was not a punishment as it was in Genesis. And I want to point out how, even though they're from very different parts of the world, both the Hopis and the Hebrews come from a dry desert area. And the confliction of the Hebrews believing subjugating the land and the Hopis believing otherwise, you see how the Hebrew society was more sedimentary and they farmed and they had agriculture and they raised animals and they had towns and settlements. The Hopis also had towns and settlements, but they were constantly mobile. They didn't farm nearly as much, and and they had just, in general, a less overall effect on the world around them and their environment. And while they can't really pin down whether it was the lifestyle these cultures lived that created the creation story, or if it was the creation story itself that caused them to live the lives that they live. I would guess that it was the lives they already led that caused the creation stories to be the way they are, because mostly stories are just explaining why things are the way they are, not telling you how to go in the future. That's a lot of the later myths and legends and passages in their belief systems. But part of it 
definitely had an effect on their society and what they believed in because you see with Genesis and the emphasis on it being patriarchal and how the church and a lot of the societies it uh, affected or sprang up or who had that belief system were patriarchal and always had a man in charge then with the Hopis they had a matriarchal society as it was a female god who led them to salvation and gifted them with the world they have and even the genders uh, side with the story of Genesis, God is basically a man. All of the depiction of him, um, even the most famous paintings and artwork, show him as a man, and he created man in his image, so it's like him. And then in the Hopi story, you have a animal, or as I said before, like a gross spider helping them out. And it's not even that humans were created. They, in the story, talk about how they were once insects, and then they were wolves and bears, and then they were people, but wicked people, and then finally they made it to this world. It definitely shows a different belief of where humans came from and where their place is in the universe, not on top and not as a unique living being that is one of a kind, but as something that developed from everything else and is a part of everything else. And, you know, they're have much less of a line between nature and society where they really are a part of the nature and nature is a part of their story and they're not trying to subjugate nature or fight to set themselves aside and say that they are better or they are different. Even other creation stories from Native Americans from the opposite end of the country, you know, the Hopis are from the southwest while the Iroquois are from the northeast, but even in the Iroquois origin story it features a prominent female which also could explain why the Iroquois have a matriarchal society just like the Hopi but it was also that the first person was helped out again by animals and their life and the habitability of the planet was based off of what the animals gave to them and shared with them from both those stories and from even other Native American origin stories I read through while working on this podcast they just have a lot of reverence for animals and the natural world, and you can hear that, and they really do believe that they are a part of it, not above it, and not different or unique. With the reverence for those animals aside, they still show the animals to all be smart and capable and sentient beings, not just these dumb creatures that are waiting for humans to come around and tame them and make sure they're taken care of. In the other stories of the Native Americans, the animals are their own being, and oftentimes they're even more powerful than the people themselves. What all of this means, at least to me, is that the Native Americans just saw animals as a necessary force to create this world and have it habitable, while for the Judeo-Christians, you just needed God. God provided everything. Buddhism and Hinduism differ greatly from these two as instead of trying to explain the past or explain why things are how they are, they simply are just accepting that what's here is what's here, what's happening is what's happening, and their only concern is the here and now, the current present, and finding ways in this current present to improve upon the lives of others and live a good, virtuous life. So they're 
doctrines really are framework for how they should live. This all leads me to my belief of how the other two creation stories were probably made as a result of the societies and lives that those groups already led because they needed an explanation. Each of these cultures went about how they explained it differently. The Eastern cultures decided to not totally explain it, although both do have a few origin stories. That's the point of their culture and beliefs is to not focus on that, for that not to matter. Then a little more west, in the cradle of civilization with the Hebrews, they made Genesis, which they wrote down, and although they read different translations and slightly different iterations, it's been mostly the same story the whole time. And then coming all the way back to the Native Americans, a lot of those stories were what they call living stories. They didn't write them down somewhere. There's not a manuscript. It was oral tradition, uh, passing it down through generation to generation. So the iteration that I went over today might be very different than the original, but at the same time, they made sure to keep a lot of the important themes the same. And those are the themes of uh, the connection with nature, how nature propels us and helps us because we are a part of that nature and there's not a line between us and them. I think that's the most damaging belief that partially came from the Bible, but a lot of different cultures had it, is that humans are somehow above or different than the nature and the natural world around us. I grew up and was raised by that belief that we are separate and we are different and holy and whatever you want to call the difference between us. But as I get older and do more research, you see more and more the line between human and animal, which I'll go over in a later episode of this podcast, that line is incredibly blurry and it's not even really a line. It's kind of a sliding scale. There's a lot of diversity among humans with their skills and intelligence and functions. And there's also a lot among animals. It's all why I think it's so important to understand and appreciate these creation stories for what they are, which is the best explanation that people could come up with at the time for their world and their circumstances. And for us now to be able to look back and see what they believed, what might have caused that belief, and then what that belief might have caused on its own. Well, some people may disagree with me on this, but I would always be willing to find the facts and studies to show whoever disagreed that humans are animals. There's not really a difference. We're just slightly smarter and have slightly better motor skills and some other functions that we believe sets us apart. But the more testing we do, the more we notice that to not be true. We find out more and more every year how intelligent certain animals are. And while a lot of the tests are hard to do because we can communicate with other people so you can get a decent gauge of their intelligence level, but it's very hard to communicate with animals. So testing it, just like doing studies on what I was talking about earlier, it's really difficult to find a good, solid testing platform that once it's done, you can, with at least a small degree of certainty, you can gauge how intelligent or unintelligent a certain creature is, or even if it has awareness, like one of the tests I always think is the most interesting is the mirror test where you put certain animals 
just like you would try to do with a baby, up in front of a mirror. And certain animals, even within a species, certain cats can look in a mirror and have self-recognition and understand that's them. Other cats can't do it, and they're the same species. So then when you go from species to species, like you have an elephant that could do it easily and usually really smart, and then you could put a baboon or something in front of it, and it's just going to think it's another baboon, not that it's itself. Getting slightly off topic. So to bring this back to what I was talking about before, when you have a story like Genesis, that's the only validation people have actually that they are above these other creatures. They thought it back then, but just like now, they don't really have proof. They didn't have proof. So by making these stories and making themselves up to be important, everybody wants to be important, then they can validate themselves. I, by a long shot, enjoy the stories where the human societies weren't trying to validate themselves. When they kind of understood their role in the world and the place they take up, even without having modern knowledge or technology of how ecosystems work, they still, like with the Native Americans and with Hinduism and Buddhism, balance is a really big key component, especially when you're talking about the natural world and natural balance. They understood even hundreds or thousands of years ago that balance is so crucial. And that lack of balance that we've seen for centuries is exactly why the planet is in as poor of a shape as it's in now. I could be totally wrong on this, but it is interesting to think about if in another universe, if the Native Americans or even the New Guineans had the same advantages the Hebrews had, had better food sources and livestock and even natural sources of metals, and they were the ones who became the dominant culture, then maybe the world would be in a better place and people would have a better understanding of our place in the world and the balance that is required to keep the earth healthy and keep it going for not just human sake, but for all animals. It might just be human nature that when you have the advantage that the Hebrews had where they were over the natural world and even over other people, you really are going to see yourself as chosen in one way or another. Not that you got lucky, but that you were meant to be on top.